0: section number three of a general view of positivism this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a general view of positivism by Auguste Comte, translated by john henry bridges chapter one the intellectual character of positivism part three The chief difficulty of the positive synthesis was to complete our conception of the external order by extending it to social phenomena. I have now described the fundamental condition of the positive synthesis, deriving its subjective principle from the affections. It is dependent ultimately on the intellect for its objective basis. This basis connects it with the economy of the external world, the dominion of which humanity accepts, and at the same time modifies. I have left many points unexplained, but enough has been said for the purposes of this work, which is only the introduction of a larger treatise. We now come to the essential difficulty that presented itself in the construction of the synthesis. That difficulty was to discover the true theory of human and social development. The first decisive step in its discovery renders the conception of the order of nature complete. It stands out, then, as the fundamental doctrine of a universal system for which the whole course of modern progress has been preparing the way. For three centuries men of science have been unconsciously cooperating in the work. They have left no gap of any importance except in the region of moral and social phenomena. And now that man's history has been for the first time systematically considered as a whole, and has been found to be, like all other phenomena, subject to invariable laws, the preparatory labours of modern science are ended. Her remaining task is to construct that synthesis which will place her at the only point of view which every department of knowledge can be embraced. In my system of positive philosophy both these objects were aimed at. I attempted, and in the opinion of principal thinkers of our time successfully, to complete and at the same time coordinate natural philosophy by establishing the general law of human development, social as well as intellectual i shall not now enter into the discussion of this law since its truth is no longer contested fuller consideration of it is reserved for the third volume of my new treatise it lays down as is generally known that our speculations upon all subjects whatsoever pass necessarily through three successive stages a theological stage in which free play is given to spontaneous fictions of admitting of no proof the metaphysical stage characterised by the prevalence of personified abstractions or entities and lastly the positive stage, based on an exact view of the real facts of the case. The first, though purely provisional, is invariably the point from which we start. The third is the only permanent or normal state. The second has but modifying or rather a solvent influence which qualifies it for regulating the transition from the first stage to the third. We begin with theological imagination, thence we pass through metaphysical discussion, thence we at last end with positive demonstration. Thus by means of this one general law we are enabled to take a comprehensive and simultaneous view of the past, the present, and the future of humanity. In my system of positive philosophy, this law of filiation has always been associated with the law of classification, the application of which, to social dynamics, furnishes the second element requisite for the theory of development. It fixes the order in which our different conceptions pass through each of these phases. That order, as is generally known, is determined by the decreasing generality or what comes to the same thing by the increasing complexity of the phenomena, the more complex being naturally dependent on those that are more simple and less special. Arranging the sciences according to this mutual relation we find them grouped naturally in six primary divisions – mathematics, astronomy, physics, chemistry, biology, and sociology. Each passes through the three phases of development before the one succeeding it. Without continuous reference to this classification the theory of development would be confused and vague. The theory thus derived from the combination of this second or statical law with the dynamical law of the three stages seems at first sight to include nothing but the intellectual movement, but my previous remarks will have shown that it is enough to guarantee the applicability to social progress also, since social progress has invariably depended on the growth of our fundamental beliefs with regard to the economy that surrounds us. The historical portion of my positive philosophy has proved an unbroken connection between the development of activity and that of speculation, On the combined influence of these depends on the development of affection. The theory therefore requires no alteration. What is wanted is merely an additional statement explaining the phases of active, that is to say, of political development. Human activity, as I have long since shown, passes successively through the stages of offensive warfare, defensive warfare and industry. The respective connection of these stages, with a preponderance of the theological, then then metaphysical, or the positive spirit, leads at once to a complete explanation of history. It reproduces in a systematic form the only historical conception which has become adopted by universal consent, the division, namely, of history into ancient, medieval and modern. Thus the foundation of social science depends simply upon establishing the truth of this theory of development. We do this by combining the dynamic law, which is dis- its distinctive feature, with the statical principle, which renders it coherent, then we complete the theory by extending it to practical life. All knowledge is now brought within the sphere of natural philosophy, and the provisional distinction by which, since Aristotle and Plato, it has been so sharply demarcated from moral philosophy ceases to exist. The positive spirit, so long confined to the simpler inorganic phenomena, has now passed through its difficult course of probation. It extends to a more important and a more intricate class of speculations, and disengages them for ever from all theological or metaphysical influence. All our notions of truth are thus rendered hum- homogeneous, and begin at once to converge towards a central principle. A firm objective basis is consequently laid down for that complete coordination of human existence towards which all sound philosophy has ever tended. But which the want of adequate materials has hitherto made impossible by the discovery of sociological laws social questions are made paramount and thus our subjective principle is satisfied without danger to free thought it will be felt i think that the principal difficulty of the positive synthesis was met by my discovery of the laws of development if we bear in mind that while the theory completes and coordinates The objective basis of the system, it at the same time holds it in subordination to the subjective principle. It is under the influence of this moral principle that the whole philosophical construction should be carried on. The inquiry into the order of the universe is an indispensable task, and it comes necessarily within the province of the intellect, but the intellect is too apt to aim in its pride at something beyond its proper function, which consists in unremitting service of the social sympathies. It would willingly escape from all control and follow its own bent towards speculative digressions, a tendency which is favoured at present by the undisciplined habits of thought naturally due to the first rise of positivism in its special departments. The influence of the moral principle is necessary to recall it to its true function. Since office investigation were allowed to assume an absolute character and to recognise no limit, we should only be repeating in a scientific form many of the worst results of theological and metaphysical belief. The universe is to be studied not for its own sake, but for the sake of man, or rather of humanity. To study it in any other spirit would not only be immoral, but also highly irrational. For, as statements of pure objective truth, our scientific theories can never really be satisfactory. They only satisfy us from the subjective point of view, that is, by limiting themselves to the treatment of such questions as have some direct or indirect influence over human life. It is for social feeling to determine these limits, outside which our knowledge will always remain imperfect as well as useless. And this even in the case of the simplest phenomena, as astronomy testifies. Were the influence of social feelings to be slackened, the positive spirit would soon fall back. the subjects which were preferred during the period of its infancy, subjects the most remote from human interest and therefore the easiest. While its probationary period lasted, it was natural to investigate all accessible problems without distinction, and this was often justified by the logical value of many problems that, scientifically speaking, were useless. But now that the positive method has been sufficiently developed to be applied exclusively to the purpose for which it was intended, There is no use whatsoever in prolonging the period of probation by these idle exercises. Indeed, the want of purpose and discipline in our researches is rapidly assuming a retrograde character. Its tendency is to undo the chief results obtained by the spirit of detail during the time when that spirit was really essential to progress. Here, then, we are met by a serious difficulty. The construction of the objective basis for the positive synthesis imposes two conditions which seem, at first sight, incompatible. On the one hand we must allow the intellect to be free, or else we shall not have the full benefit of its services, and on the other we must control its natural tendency to unlimited digressions. The problem was insoluble so long as the study of the natural economy did not include sociology. But as soon as the positive spirit extends to the treatment of social questions, these at once take precedence of all others, and thus the moral point of view becomes paramount. Objective science proceeding from without inwards, falls at last into natural harmony with the subjective or moral principle, the superiority of which it had for so long time resisted. As a mere speculative question, it might be considered as proved to the satisfaction of every true thinker that the social point of view is logically and scientifically supreme over all others, being the only point from which our scientific conceptions can be regarded as a whole. Yet its influence can never be injurious to the process of other positive studies, for these, whether for the sake of their method or their subject matter, will always continue to be necessary as an introduction to the final science. Indeed the positive system gives the highest sanction and the most powerful stimulus to all preliminary sciences by insisting on the relation to which each of them bears to the great whole humanity. Thus the foundation of social science, Bears out the statement made at the beginning of this work that the intellectual would, under positivism, accept its proper position of subordination to the heart. The recognition of this, which is the subjective principle of positivism, renders the construction of a complete system of human life impossible. The antagonism which, since the close of the Middle Ages, has arisen between reason and feeling was an anomalous, though inevitable, condition. It is now for ever at an end and the only system which can really satisfy the wants of our nature, individually or collectively, is therefore ready for our acceptance. As long as the antagonism existed, it was hopeless to expect that social sympathy could do much to modify the preponderance of self-love in the affairs of life. But the case is different as soon as reason and sympathy are brought into active cooperation. Separately, their influence in our imperfect organization is very feeble, But combined it may extend indefinitely. It will never indeed be able to do away with the fact that practical life must to a large extent be regulated by interested motives, yet it may introduce a standard of morality inconceivably higher than any that has existed in the past before these two modifying forces could be made to combine their action upon our stronger and lower instincts. Distinction between abstract and concrete laws It is the former only that we require for the purpose before us. In order to give more precise conception of the intellectual basis on which the system of positive policy should rest, I must explain the general principle by which it should be limited. It should be confined to what is really indispensable to the constitution of that policy, otherwise the intellect will be carried away, as it has been before by its tendency to useless digressions. It will endeavour to extend the limits of its province thereby escaping from the discipline imposed by social motives and putting off all attempts at moral and social regeneration for a longer time than the construction of the philosophical basis for action really demands here we shall find a fresh proof of the importance of my theory of development By that discovery, the intellectual synthesis may be considered as having already reached the point from which the synthesis of affections may be at once begun, and even that of actions, at least in its highest and most difficult part morality properly so called. With the view of restricting the construction of the objective basis within reasonable limits, there is this distinction to be borne in mind. In the order of nature there are two classes of laws, those that are simple or abstract those that are to compound or concrete in my work on positive philosophy this distinction has been thoroughly established and frequent use has been made of it it will be sufficient here to point out its origin and the method of applying it of course we can only judge of an object by the sum of its phenomena but it is open to us either to examine a special class of phenomena abstracted from all the beings that exhibit it or to take some special object and examine a whole concrete group of phenomena In the latter case, we shall be studying different systems of existence. In the former, different modes of activity. As good an example of the distinction as can be given is that, already mentioned, of meteorology. The facts of weather are evidently combinations of astronomical, physical, chemical, biological, and even social phenomena, each of these classes requiring its own separate theories. Were these abstract laws sufficiently well known to us, then the whole difficulty of the concrete problem would be how to combine them, as to deduce the order in which each composite effect would follow. This, however, is a process which seems to me far beyond our feeble powers of deduction, that even supposing our knowledge of the abstract laws perfect, we should still be obliged to have recourse to the inductive method. Now the investigation of the economy of nature here contemplated is evidently of the abstract kind, We decompose that economy into its primary phenomena, that is to say, into those which are not reducible to others. These we range in classes, each of which, notwithstanding the connection that exists between all, requires a separate inductive process, for the existence of laws cannot be proved in any one of them by pure deduction. It is only with these simpler and more abstract relations that our synthesis is directly concerned. When these are established they afford rational groundwork for the more composite and concrete researches. The great complexity of concrete relations make it probable that we shall never be able to coordinate them perfectly. In that case the synthesis would always remain limited to abstract laws. But its true object, that of supplying an objective basis for the great synthesis of human life, will nonetheless be attained. For this groundwork of abstract knowledge would introduce harmony between all our mental conceptions and thereby would make it impossible to systematize our feelings and actions, which is the object of all sound philosophy. The abstract study of nature is therefore all that is absolutely indispensable for the establishment of unity in human life. It serves as the foundation of all wise action, as the philosophia prima, the necessity of which is the normal state of humanity. Was dimly foreseen by Bacon. When the abstract laws exhibiting various modes of activity have been brought systematically before us, our practical knowledge of each special system of existence ceases to be purely empirical, though the greater number of concrete laws may still be unknown. We find the best example of this truth in the most difficult and important subject of all, sociology. Knowledge of the principal statical and dynamical laws of social existence is evidently sufficient for the purpose of systematizing the various aspects of private or public life, and thereby of rendering our condition far more perfect. Should this knowledge be acquired, of which there is now no doubt, we need not regret being unable to give satisfactory explanations of every state of society that we find existing through the world in all ages, the discipline of social feeling will check any foolish indulgences of the spirit of curiosity, and prevent the understanding from wasting its powers in useless speculations. For feeble these powers are. It is from them humanity derives her most efficient means of contending against the defects of the external order. The discovery of the principal concrete laws would no doubt be attended by most beneficial results, moral as well as, as, well as physical, and this in the field which the science of the future will reap its richest harvest. But such knowledge is not indispensable for our present purpose, which is to form a complete synthesis of life, effecting for the final stage of humanity what the theological synthesis effected from its primitive state. For this purpose abstract philosophy is undoubtedly sufficient, so that even supposing concrete philosophy should never become so perfect as we desire, social regeneration will still be possible. In my theory of development, the required synthesis of abstract conceptions already exists. Regarded under this more simple aspect, our system of scientific knowledge is already so far elaborated that all thinkers whose nature is sufficiently sympathetic may proceed without delay to the problem of moral regeneration, a problem which must prepare the way for that of political reorganisation. For we shall find that the theory of development Of which we have been speaking, when looked at from another point of view, condenses and systematises in all our abstract conceptions of the order of nature. This will be understood by regarding all departments of our knowledge as being really component parts of one and the same science, the science of humanity. All other sciences are but the prelude or development of this. Before we can either enter upon it directly, there are two subjects which it is necessary to investigate our external circumstances, and the organisation of our own nature. Social life cannot be understood without first understanding the medium in which it has developed, and the beings who manifest it. We shall make no progress, therefore, in the final science until we have sufficient abstract knowledge of the outer world and of individual life to define the influence of these laws on the special laws of social phenomena. And this is necessary from the logical as well as from the scientific point of view. The feeble faculties of our intellect require us to be trained for the more difficult speculations by practice in the easier. For the same reasons, the study of the inorganic world should take precedence to the organic. For in the first place, the laws of the more universal mode of existence have a preponderating influence over those of the more special modes, and in the second place it is clearly incumbent on us to begin the study of positive method with its simplest and most characteristic applications. I need not dwell further upon principles so fully established in my former work. Social philosophy, therefore, ought on every ground to be preceded by natural philosophy in the ordinary sense of the word, that is to say by the study of inorganic and organic nature. It is reserved for our own century to take in the whole scope of science, but the commencement of these preparatory studies dates from the first astronomical discoveries of antiquity natural philosophy was completed by the modern science of biology, of which the ancient possessed nothing but a few statical principles. The dependence of biological conditions on the astronomical is very certain, but these two sciences differ too much from each other and are too indirectly connected to give us an adequate conception of the natural philosophy as a whole. It would be pushing the principle of condensation too far to reduce it to these two terms. One connecting link was supplied by the science of chemistry which arose in the Middle Ages. The natural selection of astronomy, chemistry and biology, leading gradually up to the final science sociology, made it possible to conceive, more or less imperfectly, of an intellectual synthesis. But the interposition of chemistry was not enough, because, though its relation to biology was intimate, it was too remote from astronomy. For want of understanding the mode which astronomical conditions really affected us, the arbitrary and chimerical fancies of astrology were employed, though of course quite valueless except for this temporary purpose. In the seventeenth century, however, the science of physics, especially so called, was founded, and a satisfactory arrangement of scientific conceptions began to be formed. Physics included a series of inorganic researches, the more general branch of which bordered on astronomy, the more special in chemistry. To complete our view of the scientific hierarchy, we have now only to go back to its origin. Mathematics, a class of speculations so simple and so general that they passed it at once and without effort into the positive stage. Without mathematics astronomy was impossible, and they will always continue to be the starting point of positive education for the individual as they have been for the race. Even under the most absolute theological influence they stimulate positive spirit to a certain degree of systematic growth. From them it extends step by step to the subjects from which at first it seemed most rigidly excluded end of section three recording by morris in arsey bedfordshire